when we are swept up off our feet and we're not keeping our head in the game, we start to project onto this person Mm -hmm. who we hope they will be. We're not seeing them. We're seeing them through rose-colored glasses now. We're not seeing them for who they are showing themselves to be. We are seeing, oh, he's so charismatic. He's so charming. And then you totally dismiss the fact that he was just totally rude to someone or just cussed someone out when they were jaywalking and he almost hit him. And so you start to minimize Mm -hmm. those aspects of his personality that you really should be paying attention to as you're gathering information. Welcome to Love and Life. I'm Dr. Karen Anderson Abril here with my co-host, Pastor Elliot Anderson. And Love and Life is your place to hear conversations grounded in psych research, psychotherapy, and biblical truth to help us thrive in love and life. Today's topic is one that I have been wanting to address for a long time with the community that we have built and the women that I've worked with over the last several years. I do hear a lot of rhetoric around narcissists. Many women, in fact, have built careers to help women recover from narcissistic abuse. I think that's wonderful that we have an awareness of narcissistic personality disorder. That being said, my other concern is what we talk about in the field is called diagnostic inflation, meaning we're diagnosing everyone and assuming many more people have a personality disorder than probably is what's accurate. Because let's be honest, there are people who are narcissistic and then there are people who are just mean and selfish and insensitive and lack empathy. Elliot, let's talk about this from a clinical perspective, from the work you do with couples and individuals. Let's look at some brass tacks first. What is really the prevalence of narcissistic personality disorder? Yeah, and I think coming off of this inflation, diagnostic inflation, there's also like an anecdotal assumption Mm -hmm. where someone really hurts us or someone's really cruel, really mean, really evil, and we don't know what to think about it, and so we'll Google and then right. it will say narcissist. And, that, and that's fine. We all do that for certain things, or certain yeah. relationship struggles, or we get a little bit obsessive in researching things and can actually build quite a bit of fear out of that, by the way, if you're not careful. But the prevalence of narcissism is really low. Recent study, September 13, 2022, 0.5%. So 0.5, so really low, one out of 200. Yeah. And you might say, I've happened to date three of those. Maybe you have, <laughs> maybe you're drawn to Possible. that. but yeah. And 75% of all narcissists are men, and that makes sense in some biological gender to me as a clinician as well. But assuming I've met with at least a thousand couples by now, maybe more, maybe closer to 1,500, I'm not sure. I think I've only been in the presence of maybe two that I could really just say absolutely a narcissist with some of the signs of psychopathology that were so strong, complete lack of empathy complete lack of reality-based connection ability and communicative ability, not only to their spouse or their girlfriend or boyfriend or whatever, but to me, I could have just written down in my notes quickly when they left. Absolute narcissist. It's also rare that narcissists will go get diagnosed themselves. Some of this could be mm-hmm. lower than we might think because it's <laughs> a narcissist doesn't think they truly need help. So it's other people who need help. So that can skew our facts and so our, our numbers as well. So you're saying the numbers may actually be higher. It could be a little because higher. Because narcissists don't tend to roll up into the therapist's office and get that diagnosis. Yeah, they're saying. not like, you know, I got some troubles here. I'm struggling. Right. I need help. That just doesn't happen very no, often. They would assume everyone else has problems. Right. 
So let's just ground this conversation with the DSM-5 diagnostic criteria. And it's a pervasive pattern of grandiosity in fantasy or behavior, need for admiration and lack of empathy, beginning by early adulthood and present in a variety of contexts, as indicated by five or more of the following. One, has a grandiose sense of self-importance. So, for example, would exaggerate achievements and talents, expects to be recognized as superior without commensurate achievements. Two, is preoccupied with fantasies of unlimited success, power, brilliance, beauty, or ideal love. Three, believes that he or she is special and unique and can only be understood by or should only associate with other special or high-status people or institutions. Four, requires excessive admiration. Five, has a sense of entitlement. That is, unreasonable expectations of especially favorable treatment or automatic compliance with his or her expectations. Six, is interpersonally exploitative, takes advantage of others to achieve his or her own ends. Seven, lacks empathy, is unwilling to recognize or identify with the feelings and needs of others. Eight, is often envious of others or believes that others are envious of him or her. And nine, shows arrogant, haughty, behaviors or attitudes. And this can play out in three different concepts. One, overt, two, covert, and three, malignant. And I do want to frame this conversation, Elliot, because you and I know, most of our community knows that I tend to err on the side of, I prefer not to diagnose everybody because mm -hmm. I believe that the human condition is broad and complex and we have vicissitudes of emotions and that it's normal and it's desirable to have a wider range of emotions. That being said, I don't want to come across as minimizing anyone's pain. Whether someone was in a relationship with a full-blown narcissist or whether they were just in a relationship with someone who was really mean, I don't want to minimize anyone's pain. I just want to make sure that when we're tackling this subject, that we're looking at the fullness of the experience. And like you said, I'm hurt. I go do a Google search. Oh, I'm hurt because I was dating a narcissist. That's an easy explanation. It may be true, but it may also be actually oversimplifying what actually happened. Yeah, what I think happens a lot is, especially if someone's got a trauma background, significant trauma, yeah. it would tend to be more in the avoidant attachment side again, that something triggers certain responses in the relationship and all diagnostic symptomology there that you repeat, elements of that start to take hold and just become the prevalent relationship. Sometimes that's self-sabotaging, sometimes that's deactivating the attachment to get out of it. Sometimes they're just not kind, good people and they love-bombed you and right. got all that admiration and attention they wanted and then they feel like they own you and start essentially tearing you down. That sounded fairly narcissistic, but what I'm saying is they might not be narcissistic, especially not showing that from teenage years on but in the middle of the trauma or in the middle of the crisis or in the middle of the angst and pain and suffering, they take on all those characteristics until it's over. Because sometimes these kind of people do that to a woman, these kind of men do this to a woman, and then maddeningly so, three months later, start dating a woman and marry her and they're great. And that's really upsetting too. Okay, so you're saying, when you talked about someone having experienced trauma, that now the person we're labeling as narcissistic, maybe this is a trauma response that he is now manifesting in his behaviors? Yeah, the PTSD part of that or the triggers that happen or the fear of the intimacy that happens or the fear of the attachment that happens 
they don't know what to do about it and they start acting in certain behaviors in certain ways that end up looking and are very narcissistic in their patterns, which often I think is sabotaging that relationship when they don't know what to do. Not excusing it. I'm just giving some practical. Sure. Or again, another benign example of what may feel like you're in a relationship with a narcissist is what you were saying, someone who doesn't know how to get out of it. So I'll just be really mean and cruel and then she'll break up with me. Yeah. Or something along those lines. But then when they're with the person that's the right fit for them, like you said, it would be infuriating for someone to watch someone behave like a total gentleman and cherishing his new relationship when he had been so cruel and heartless with you. Whereas a true narcissist will go and do the exact same thing to the next one and the next one and the next one. Because it is a personality disorder. Exactly, disorder. It's not going to change from context to context. It may be more prevalent or more obvious in certain contexts, that overt piece as opposed to the covert piece, but it's going to be ingrained. And my recollection from my master's in clinical psych when I was studying this more intently was that personality disorders are believed to have occur within the first two years of life. Like you, ha- yeah. it has to be a profound trauma. The mother has an inability to connect with the infant. Or the trauma separation mm-hmm. that can occur in those scenarios. And it comes in patterns if the mother or the caregiver has mental illness as well, and then they're pulled away from the baby during this time and breakdowns, et cetera. Yeah, it creates it. In fact, right. for women, at least in my clinical experience, I don't know if I've ever truly met with, counseled, or talked to a narcissistic woman, but if it happened, I would almost bet my house on a significantly traumatic early childhood abuse. Because these personality disorders are survival mechanisms. Mm-hmm. They are in place to try to keep the person alive. And then, of course, they end up repeating trauma through these patterns of of behavior. And they're very sad. And they're very resistant to change. And I think borderline personality disorder will often mimic certain aspects of narcissistic. Mm -hmm. And so we've, you and I both talked to people who talk about, my mom was a narcissist. It's very rare for a mother Mm -hmm. to be a narcissist, but they could be extremely selfish, Mm -hmm. focused on identity and self through their children. So the kids never feel like they're firm for them. It's what they do for and often attachment issues along with that. So the child never feels like fully affirmed and cherished. And so it's that giant dance, but I wouldn't call that a narcissist woman. Mm -hmm. I would call that a woman with borderline or attachment disorder Mm -hmm. that manifests in a very narcissistic manner. That's some of the clarity I was trying to bring. And I remember that too from my clinical training that women were much more likely, even if the set of circumstances that led them to a personality disorder, it was much more likely for women to end up with borderline as opposed to narcissistic. But they are similar in many ways, Mm -hmm. this all-encompassing. The borderline has a grandiosity of expectation for connection in your mind, so you're only mine and so forth. Yeah, love-hate piece of the borderline. You know, the moment I love you and know you need you, I now hate you and dismiss you at the same time is just powerfully confusing. Right. So it can really wreak havoc on a partner or children. So let's talk about a woman who finds herself time and time again attracted to a narcissist or else just a mean guy, (laughs) unempathic, cold-hearted, maybe emotionally unavailable. There's a lot of different versions of this. Let's say it's a continuum. And whether she's been with a full-blown narcissist or whether she's been with just a guy who's a a, a not-so-great dude, what can we do? Obviously, we can't change people. We're certainly not going to change narcissists. What can we do to get ourselves out of that pattern of relating to men? Yeah, I think 
we have to do a little self-awareness dissection of our attraction process. What are we attracted to and why? And look yeah. at some family of origin stuff. Look at some sibling stuff that we've been starting to dive into more in the sibling. Because one of my clients who gave me permission to talk about this, doing it here, had a significant wound from a sibling that just became narcissistic in temperament, at least, and in stylistic, and then left the family and left her hanging completely and in a very dismissive, demeaning, and derogatory way. Wow. And she recognized that she's been dating guys that are similar. And she was the one who brought that up and made that recognition for me. So there's an example of that recapitulation of trying to heal from a wound. Yep. And you end up going into the exact same type of relationships. And so that's an example of how that pattern can take place. And some listeners might feel, oh, yeah, I can recognize that, how it can come out of a father wound mother wound, sibling wound, et cetera. But I think when we're studying and analyzing our attractions, we have to be super clear and honest with ourselves. And this is, again, where you make some lists, you talk it through with a therapist or a best friend or a pastor, someone you trust, probably not, if you have a bunch of wounding in your family, not to discuss those things with your family, because that's going to add another whole weird layer of potential wounding within that. And just be honest, what, especially if you've had more than one, if you've been in with a relationship now with two similar guys, similar actions took place, similar rhythms, similar ways in and then ways out and how painful it was to say, okay, what was I attracted to in the first place? Their bravado, the vision, the grandiosity, and to really do some fact check with yourself about why is that so important to me anyway, mm. right? To make it personal and trying to do some awareness to walk through that and say, what about the narcissist personality do I like? To be honest enough to mm -hmm. say, there's elements of that I obviously like because I'm drawn to it. And what is that? And that can be difficult recognition. And then say, what is my end goal? Because sometimes what we're attracted to in the start of a relationship is not what we want it to look like at the end. Mm -hmm. So we got to go, where am I drawn in the beginning? But what is my end goal? What do I really want in a man? Or what do I really want in a woman? Or what do I want in my partner for long-term stability in relationship? And they're often different. So the characteristics you're looking for and the type of communication you're looking for is often way less dramatic in the long-term commitment than this upfront power and this fire. We want to be drawn in, feel the fullness of the infatuation. And that is very intoxicating and fun, often sustainable, and it's not often what we want long-term. We don't want boring. Research tells boring kills relationships, but we definitely want stable mm -hmm. and we definitely want consistency. That's pretty much universally accepted in research. So asking, is this narcissistic flash that is drawing me in, is that consistent? Probably not. Is that stable? Probably not. Is that bringing me peace and harmony? Mm. And do I feel more freedom to be authentically me in that? Probably not. Someone with that much magnitude of charisma and energy and dynamo often overshadows us early. And there might be something in that process that actually feels good that's not real. Mm -hmm. And so it, it takes tremendous self-awareness to walk through these kind of things and I'm saying it very quickly, but this is, I've done this with probably 10 clients in the last two years, five of them from our podcast now, from your yeah. podcast ministry that came through as we started making those things available. And it usually came out of the father wound, mother wound, attachment. In mm -hmm. case our listeners haven't done that yet, we have a ton of stuff on attachment and wounding that have really stirred people and helped them heal and grow and recognize. And these patterns happen. And I've gone through this very intentionally and strategically with four women in particular I can think of where we really did three sessions hammering through these. Okay. What am I attracted to and why? What's my long-term right. goal and why? What do I need to do a little bit differently mm -hmm. to 
keep present. Because yeah. sometimes we get so enamored with what's happening, we just whoosh, we just go full-fledged, oh, yeah. get swept off our feet. Why do we say that phrase? Because that's what happens. We lose our grounding. Yeah. Right. Right. And so how do we keep grounded and yet be super happy for this pursuit and attraction at the same time? And almost a conscious, pre-conscious identification and then staying present even in the fun. And I've right. had many of your clients... It reminds me of what you and I used to do when you were dating. I've had many clients call me like the night after a date or the next morning. Mm -hmm. I got to walk you through it because I think it was good, but I'm not sure. I want to walk through. <laughs> right. And we're not, we're not trying board. to create dependency. I don't want to make no. it sound like that to your listeners. But to get some instantaneous feedback because we are so drawn to that and captivated by that, we can literally lose our mind and not think rationally anymore. I've been there in relationships. You've been there in relationships. Oh, Mine yeah. a long time ago, but I've been there. You lose all... <laughs> you're like... You are not, no longer in common sense world at all. Right. And that's why the Instagram reels that I've been doing where love smarter, not harder. Mm -hmm. Keep your head in the game. I've heard it put this yeah. way. Follow your heart, but take your head with you. Absolutely. And that's, and some people might think, oh, then I'm not getting caught up in the, I, I want to be swept away. I want to yeah, feel yeah. that feeling of just, just euphoria of this potential. But what happens is like you're saying, when we are swept up off our feet and we're not keeping our head in the game, we start to project onto this person mm -hmm. who we hope they will be. We're not yeah. seeing them. We're seeing them through rose colored glasses now. We're not seeing them for who they are showing themselves to be. We yeah. are seeing, oh, he's so charismatic. He's so yeah. charming. And then you totally dismissed the fact that he was just totally rude to someone or just cussed someone out when they were jaywalking and he almost hit him. And it, so you start to minimize mm -hmm. those aspects of his personality that you really should be paying attention to as you're gathering information. Yeah. And I ask clients very specifically, walk me through the whole date. And sometimes I'll ask really little specific questions. How do you treat the waitress? And then occasionally right. something will come out for that. Oh, like he was in charge of her. I said, is that really appropriate? No, but it was so cool how he was whipping out $200 bills, $100 bill here, $100, that kind of stuff. And so yeah. trying to kind of not poke at them. I certainly want them to have a great date and have a great time. But the reason they're seeing me is because they've had a pattern. Right. <laughs> so they're right. not just off the street calling me, go, hey, can you be my date doctor? That's not it at all. These women have often been really hurt. And so mm -hmm. they're wanting that grounding and to make sure because it's common like, personifying a fantasy. Like we have this vision of Superman or something or Superwoman and then when we see little tiny glimpses of that heroism almost that's going on, we just put it in the full magnitude, which isn't healthy for us, them, or anybody. Right. Yeah, it's a great guy or great gal or whatever, but let's talk about the pragmatics. Let's, and then if we've done some of that work ahead of time, writing out lists of non-negotiables and things that are right. worthy of consideration and others. And I've had many clients tell me they've been so hurt by addiction and past relationships or family of origin, they just can't date someone who drinks too much. And then... They'll have a date and everything went great, except the guy or the gal had eight drinks. And all of a sudden they're willing to ignore it or to dismiss it. And I'm like, no, we talked about this. Right. This is absolutely non-negotiable. That was yours, not me. I wasn't making this for you. You were making this for you. Let's look at this very specifically and intentionally. Because if they're willing to have eight or nine drinks the very first time they meet you, oh, yeah. what does that say about the potential of abuse? I'm not trying to oh. cap too hard on people who like their alcohol, but... No, That's the problem. That's the problem sign. And if he's leading with that, he's basically saying, this is how much I will drink. Like he's letting her know. Yeah. So you can't act, oh, and then he ended up an alcoholic. I think he showed you pretty- Yeah, he was already. On. 
We'd love to connect with you further via our weekly newsletter. Joining the Love & Life family gets you first access to bonus content and flash sale pricing for books and consultations. And when you sign up, you'll receive Karen's Empowered Dating Playbook or my Empowered Marriage Playbook. Head over to loveandlifemedia.com to join the Love & Life family. So when we're talking about this recapitulation, let's underscore that just for someone who that term might be new for them. So if we're thinking this narcissist or someone who maybe is just a bad guy or a bad boy, Mm -hmm. that tendency for a woman to try to be in relationship with him, if it's a recapitulation from a father wound, for example, maybe dad was very extroverted and charismatic, but available to everyone else in the community except his family and except Mm -hmm. his daughter. And so she's trying now in her adult life to repair that wound Mm -hmm. by now I'll be able to get the guy that my father was always unavailable to me, but now I'll find an emotionally unavailable man. And I will in my adulthood when I'm in charge and in control, I'll be able to get him. My love is so wonderful that he'll heal through me. Oof. That's yeah. And that's a wonderful thought. And it's so dangerous and not true. Yeah. Yeah. Even though a love relationship can heal both people quite a bit, but to think that you're going to take someone else's wounds and simply by loving them, heal them, especially someone with narcissistic tendencies, no shot. And so then that gets you on that dance. Oh, it's obviously my fault. I got to do more. I got to sacrifice more, serve more. And a true narcissist will take that and abuse you with it. You are right. You don't work as hard as I do in this relationship. You're a piece of junk. The quotes I've heard from evil guys or people with this kind of tendency is awful. You know, someone who's like a very in-shape woman who works hard at her fitness and, hey, are you getting fat? You're looking really fat. What's your problem? Why don't you work out more? And go make me some cookies. You know, that kind of really direct, mean, demeaning, I'm going to criticize you, cut you down, and then ask you to serve me at the same time. The power in that manipulation is just awful. That's like cult leader stuff. And some boyfriends and men do that. Women tend to be narcissistic differently, in my opinion, but... That is a very common way for a man to do I'm going to tear you down and then ask you to serve me at the same time. And she's trying to heal her father wound and just re-wounding herself in the process. and also Which feels natural in some ways, right? It feels natural that the men I love hurt me. Then also taking ownership for his healing as she starts to see the chinks in his armor, which was a fake armor anyway, but as she starts to see that and then, oh, but my love will be enough to save him from himself or from his narcissism. not true. Orders aren't saved by love. No. And like I said earlier, they're very resistant to therapy. So it's yeah. going to be a rough road in general, much less ever hoping to have that healing that they so deeply yeah. desire. So let's talk about love bombing because love bombing yeah. often starts. Yeah. And for someone who's not struggling with that pattern of being attracted to narcissists, love bombing will feel very forced. It will Mm -hmm. feel too much too soon. And that's a beautiful thing if someone has that. But that that sensibility, because they haven't had that woundedness in their past, in this particular domain anyway. But for someone who is susceptible to being love-bombed, it feels so, oh, I've waited my whole life for this kind of attention. I've waited my whole life for someone to get me the way this guy gets me. And I've always cautioned the women in my community to pump the brakes. So even when he's trying to overwhelm you, don't receive it. As flattering as it may feel in the moment, mm-hmm. remember things like, he can't possibly have this kind of emotion, m- emotional intensity for me yet. He's known me two weeks. Yeah. Even if he thinks 
even if you give him the benefit of the doubt, like he thinks he's that into me already, you have to recognize that he's projecting onto you who he wants you to be. And so it's not a genuine affirmation of who you are at this point. It can't possibly be. So to keep that, again, keeping your head in the game, what do you see with some of the couples? I'm sure you see some that actually end up in long-term relationships after love bombing or some that fizzle out very quickly. Yeah. And, and love bombing is not common, especially once you're in your upper 20s through 50s, 60s, if your relationships are starting at that age. So if the man's love bombing you and he's like 45, the only way I could see that being positive is if his first marriage ended in death and he grieved it and he's just so excited to find a new new woman, new relationship, he's going overboard. It's almost like a manifestation of the grief that lost his first wife. But if he's been married four times already and he's loving mom and you, do not trust it. And that's what happens a lot. And some of these guys have patterns of going all in to win the woman per se, and then it turns off as fast as your water after your bathtub's full. And so I think there's got to be some contextual look at the reality. But I'm so much different than the other women in his life. Really how? Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. Do you know them other than what he's telling you? So again, some common sense there. If we were listening to our friend talk about it, we'd be, and I do that with clients all the time. If this was a scenario and this is your friend talking, what would you say? And they go, oh, I right. tell them, be careful and slow down. I said, okay, <laughs> right. then you just got to tell yourself that. And right. I know it's exciting. I'm not saying you're not worth it as a person to get that much energy. But I've literally had ladies tell me that men have invited them on a seven-day cruise on the second date. That's ridiculous. I'm sorry. It sounds really cool and really fun, but no way should you go on a boat with some man Unless you've got a private eye in your pocket, you can hire and do a complete background <laughs> check and everything else. And I'd still not recommend it, but still, you know what I'm saying? It seems ludicrous. But if you have a bunch of wounding right, and you have a history of men not treating you well and not loving you well and not feeling affirmed, and this guy seems legit and wonderful and great, and just throw something like that, it can be easy just to get in the Cinderella world and think, this must be what I've been waiting for. Right. And cruises are fun. I've been on several. They're very fun. But <laughs> the idea of doing that on a second, getting that offer that quickly or something, or just the whole, let me impress you with my wealth thing. I got a private jet. Let's just go up to Cape Cod for the weekend. I'm like, you just, didn't you just have your first date yesterday? Right. It's, it's, there's no common sense to it whatsoever. So the whole idea of love bombing, we shouldn't have to be bombed to receive love. Right. If we think about love bomb, how dramatic that would be, that's not very loving. That sounds like a lot of destruction and violence. And, and, and that's what also, happens. Yeah. And if it is a narcissist or with someone with very narcissistic tendencies, he's testing you to see how accessible Absolutely. you are. He's going right. to be like, can I just wow her? But he's testing her to see what he can get away with. How many boundaries? That's a boundary violation to act like he can whisk her away to Cape Cod for a seven-day or a seven-day yeah. cruise. He's trying to see what he can get and how quickly he can get it. And the yeah. other thing is we have to go back to all the research that looks at men want to pursue. And I always re recommend to women, do not deny him the pleasure of pursuing mm -hmm. you. And you're not playing games, but you're just honoring your own time, your own personality, your body. It is not going to be accessible to him all the time within two weeks. No. Yeah. And what's a, a great check for you? If someone early in your dating process, some man in particular, because it's, it's got to be 95% of men who love bomb. If they offer you something so fast, it seems overwhelmingly crazy good, a great check is it to rebuff that and see how they respond. 
because a narcissist will turn on you quickly mm-hmm. and even make you feel guilty on date number two. Wow, I thought you were going to be different than the other ladies. Right. I couldn't believe you won't accept a cruise. Who would not accept the cruise and immediately turn on you? Like, Hold it. I barely know you. And that, again, if you've had some wounds and you're feeling like unattractive and now this man's coming and he's attractive and he's got this money and he's trying to do, you can bear, oh, no, no, you're right. Let's go. Right. Bam. You're right. He's already set you right. up now. He knows he can coerce you and convince you mm-hmm. and manipulate you. And he might not be consciously that evil, but unconsciously mm-hmm. he just sets you up and you are in trouble. It's gonna. It's going to lead to all kinds of variables of manipulation, control, coercion. It's really abusive stuff. And we have to protect ourselves because the bad boys, narcissists, or even straight up evil people exist, and mm-hmm. we can't change that. Pray for them. But yeah. <laughs> as far as protecting our hearts and trying to change these patterns, we have to take ownership of that. Elliot, I know you have a session, so I want to let you go. I feel like this could be a part one of two because I think sure. there's a, or maybe more. And maybe we can get some questions from the community to see what kinds of specific narcissistic type tendencies that they've encountered in their dating journey. And yeah, and we can just revisit this because I do think it's a topic that really is worth really delving into. Yeah. One of the questions that we should put on the table now, so I'm saying it out loud so we have it recorded, is what do I do if I'm in a relationship and now I'm aware of these narcissistic tendencies? Oh, yeah. Yeah. How do I get out if I need to get out? How do mm-hmm. I, if I still love the man and think there's some benefit and some strength in relationship, how do I navigate now the next decisions and what kind of questions can I ask and what kind of movements can I do to make sure I know whether or not I'm going to have the freedom to be authentic, to be appreciated, to be affirmed, accepted, or am I asking for an abusive relationship long term? Because that's what it'll be if you marry a narcissist or even if you just commit to a narcissist long term. Yeah, and certainly there will be women in our community who are married and have kids with a narcissist. And That's right. So now what? Yeah. Yep. Sounds good. All right. Okay, sounds good. Elliot and I want to thank you very much for spending a portion of your day with us. We hope that this conversation has given you clarity, insight, and encouragement. We're here to help us all align our mind, body, and spirit for empowered relationships. Thanks again. And until next time, make it a great week. Love and Life is produced by Tim May and hosts and executive producer, Dr. Karen Anderson-Abram. 